Hello, hello, and welcome back to the Cory Doctor podcast. Like a skipping stone, I have momentarily touched down here in my office on a Sunday, and so I get to record for you. Boy, it's been crazy. I got back on Friday morning from Calgary. It was nice to see everybody who's come to the tour stop so far in San Diego, Berkeley, Mountain View, San Francisco, Portland, Vancouver, and of course, Calgary. Really just tremendous. The tour stops have been great. Please do tell your friends because there's more tour stops coming up. But time doesn't stop when I'm on the road. So got home, laundry, errands, work for EFF, couple of meetings, went out for a date night. We went and saw some comedy and went to the new Tiki Bar here in town in Burbank. Took my kid off to some lessons and then now it's Sunday and I just wrote my column but to pick up my kid help her with a couple of end of year homework assignments and then two more podcasts tonight and then boy it's just it's a lot but it's great because I get to do this to help promote my books which really matter to me and are really kind of my vocation the thing I've spent my whole life building up to and there is something just great about living out this dream that I've had really since I was six years old and being out on the road with a book and meeting people who've read my other books and so on. So speaking of which, this week on Friday, I fly out to Gaithersburg near D.C. on Saturday on the 20th. I'll be in Gaithersburg for the Gaithersburg Book Festival. On the 22nd, I'll be in D.C. itself for Public Knowledge's Emerging Tech Keynote. On the 23rd, I go to Toronto for WebFest with Ron Debert from Citizen Lab, Dave Bedini from the Rio Statics, and Nancy Olivieri, the whistleblower. This is a benefit for the West End Phoenix, which is Dave's amazing print newspaper, which is delivered by local celebrities all over Toronto once a week. It's also a launch for Red Team Blues in Toronto. Pretty much immediately thereafter, I fly off to the UK. I'm going to be in Hay on Wye on May the 28th and 29th for the How the Light Gets In Festival, then off to Oxford also on the 29th that night uh, with Tim Harford. On the 30th, I'll be in Nottingham with Christian Riley from the MMT podcast. On the 31st of May, I'll be in Manchester with Ian Forrester, aka Cubic Garden from the BBC. On June the 1st, I will be in London for the UCL Peter Kirstein Computer Science Lecture. And on June the 3rd, I'll be in Edinburgh for the Chimera Festival. On June the 5th, it's back to London. I'm doing an event for Red Team Blues with Baroness Martha Lane Fox at the British Library. On the 7th of June, I will be in Berlin for Republica. And on the 8th of June, I'll be signing books at Berlin's Otherland Bookstore. That's all the stuff that's on my schedule, though there's lots more to come. So I'm going to get straight into this week's reading. But there's a thing that's come up on my tour that I wanted to take a note of here before I move on to that. I keep meeting people on the tour who are like, you know, I've listened to your podcast for years, or I've read your blog for years, I've read your posts for years. I have never tried reading one of your novels. I'm really looking forward to it. And that is great. I'm so glad to hear that people who know me from one part of my work are going to start trying me in another part of the work. If you're one of those people, if you've enjoyed my podcasts, my columns, and my essays, and my blog posts, whether for months or years, let me tell you, I think you'll like the books. The novels really are a way of mobilizing all of those same ideas and thoughts and um, hopes for the future and worries about the present and turning them into what I think can credibly be called cracking yarns. People like these books. So if you've never tried one of my novels, I hope this is the, the push that gets you to do that. Anyway, without further ado, I'm going to get into this week's reading. It's my latest Locust column, and here we are. The swivel-eyed loons have a point. 
from the April 2023 issue of Locus Magazine. One of the more baffling events of the first quarter of 2023 was the mass protest in Oxford, England, not Mississippi, against the 15-minute city pledge of movement to get city councils to strive for cities where each neighborhood is a walkable place with most amenities, groceries, schools, healthcare, employers, leisure activities, located within a pleasant 15-minute walk from your door. The 15-minute city is an extremely inoffensive and common-sense idea, and moreover, Oxford is basically already a 15-minute city because it is a medieval city with a street plan to match, anchored around a massive university campus. University campuses everywhere are pretty much all 15-minute cities. So it's weird that a bunch of people showed up to protest it, chanting slogans and waving signs decrying the World Economic Forum, the Great Reset, imaginary climate lockdowns, and eating bugs. In America, this is called the paranoid style in American politics. In the UK, they have a far more colorful epithet, swivel-eyed loons. Here's the thing. The swivel-eyed loons have a point. Oh, not about 15-minute cities. The 15-minute city is a perfectly pleasant idea that mostly requires adding a few bus lanes, loosening single-use zoning restrictions, and sprinkling some bike-locking pillars in strategic locations. The organizers of the Oxford protest conflated the 15-minute city plan with another plan to restrict cars in the city centre. Again, this is a perfectly good idea. Oxford is a medieval city designed for pedestrians and horses, and anyone who's driven through town during rush hour has seen its transformation into the kind of traffic jam Hieronymus Bosch might have painted on a particularly grim day. The beleaguered municipal councillors behind this plan are at pains to point out that the car restrictions won't involve building walls or checkpoints, so please, please stop bombarding us with death threats. Rather, the restrictions will be enforced with automated license plate recorders, ALPRs, that will log every car passing through the city, cross-reference it with the owner's identity, log it, and issue fines if warranted. The swivel-eyed loons at the anti-15-minute city protests point out that such a scheme constitutes a form of pervasive location-tracking surveillance, and that this surveillance could be leveraged to attack disfavored minorities. They're not wrong. Just look at London, where a, again, perfectly sensible system of congestion charging and low-emission zones has made serious progress in improving the air quality, reducing traffic, and improving journey times for public transit. London also uses ALPRs to enforce its traffic restrictions and pairs this with a massive public-private network of street cameras aimed at pedestrians, backstopped by a public transit system whose Oyster payment cards are virtually impossible to use anonymously. The thing is, the UK government has a long history of abusing this kind of power. The Metropolitan London Police ran a 40-year covert operation to infiltrate, track, and disrupt trade union organizers and activists, from students to members of parliament. The Met also colluded with large construction firms to maintain a secret blacklist of union organizers who were denied employment and had their lives ruined. The Met's National Public Order Intelligence Unit also spent decades infiltrating climate groups. Covert operatives even fathered children with the women they were spying on. 
After the 9-11 and 7-7 bombings, the Met and other UK policing agencies infiltrated, tracked, harassed, and intimidated Muslims wantonly and indiscriminately, tracking young children and seniors and everyone in between. When the swivel-eyed loons warn that these traffic-calming measures are designed in such a way as to enable unaccountable mass surveillance by agencies with a history of human rights abuses, they're not wrong. They are, in fact, very, very right. The anti-15-minute city conspiracy theory holds that the 15-minute city is a precursor to a new generation of climate lockdowns modeled on the COVID lockdowns. Climate lockdowns are a product of a conspiracist's fevered imagination, but here's the thing. When the swivel-eyed loons claim that the COVID lockdowns were a pretense to control everyday people, while rich people swanned around having a lovely time, they're not entirely wrong. Take Dominic Cummings, the advisor to then-Prime Minister Boris Johnson, who was charged with designing and enforcing the UK's COVID lockdowns. Cummings famously violated his own rules by driving 275 miles to Durham to check in on his family. Then he drove them home, making a 50-mile detour to visit scenic Barnard Castle. He claimed that this was a necessary measure to check his eyesight. No, I don't understand this either. Cummings eventually lost his job over this, but did not face the kind of harsh penalties that everyday people in the UK endured as the policies that Cummings himself created and oversaw were enforced against them. Cummings wasn't the only rich, powerful person who violated lockdown with impunity. Famously, Boris Johnson threw a series of radioactively illegal, extremely boozy parties in his official residence even as everyday Britons were blocked from visiting dying relatives, attending their funerals, or comforting the bereaved. The idea that rich, powerful people are happy to enact extremely invasive, restrictive rules that they are not in any way bound by isn't wrong. It's actually very, very right. The COVID crisis is very, very real. But that doesn't mean that it's not also a pretext. The lockdown allowed our employers to convert our homes into rent-free satellite offices, transforming work at home to live at work in a dizzying eye blink. Our computers and phones, often devices that we ourselves were expected to pay for, were enlisted to the corporate IT system and then enshittified with bossware that spies on our keystrokes, plunders our file systems, monitors our network activity, and for some workers, watches and listens to them constantly through the device's cameras and microphones. This didn't have to happen, but powerful people know better than to let a good crisis go to waste. Same goes for inflation. While supply chain shocks temporarily reduce supplies of some products, including basic commodities that serve as inputs to a wide variety of goods, the highly concentrated manufacturing and retail sectors use these temporary shocks to create permanent price hikes. The term of art for this is excuseflation. Corporate executives like Colgate-Palmolive CEO Noel Wallace boast to shareholders, we've been very comfortable with our ability to pass on the increases we've seen at this point, and we would expect that to continue to be the case. Kroger CEO Gary Millerchip, meanwhile, is, quote, very comfortable with our ability to pass on the increases we've seen at this point. Pepsi CEO Ramon LaGuarta wants brands that can stand for higher value to consumers, and consumers are willing to pay more for our brands. Or, as Ken Yarosh, owner of Chicago's Yarosh Bakery, put it, 
Whether it's rye flour or bird flu that impacts eggs, when it makes national news just running a business, it's an opportunity to increase the prices without getting a whole bunch of complaining from the customers. When the swivel-eyed loons claim that multinational corporations use crises like COVID or the climate emergency to screw them over, they're not wrong. They're very, very right. It's natural to be suspicious of the plans of the World Economic Forum, the talking shop for the richest, most powerful people in the world. The companies who pay big bucks to attend and the top execs featured on its main stages have a long track record of price gouging, profiteering, and human rights abuses. The WEF's plan for a Great Reset in which people, quote, own nothing by the year 2030 is, in fact, creepy. Like a 15-minute city, there's nothing intrinsically wrong with a world in which the goods that we need only from time to time are available on demand. As a homeowner who needs to hang between zero and three pictures per year, I own a drill that I jokingly call the minimum viable drill. It is such a badly made object that I am halfway convinced it will kill me someday when it explodes in a shower of white-hot shrapnel. But even if that's how its duty cycle ends, it won't change the fact that for 99.999% of its life, it sat in a drawer taking up space. I would love it if my local library or community group had a couple of floating drills that were of the sort that a contractor might use. A beautifully made, well-maintained work of art that would easily replace 50 minimum viable drills in my neighborhood, digitally tracked for routine maintenance and to gather telemetry that could feed into the next product design iteration to make its successors even better. A neighborhood drill could be designed with non-market imperatives. For example, it could be designed for easy repair, and to gracefully decompose back into the material stream when it is beyond repair. The corporations that pay to send execs to the WEF don't want neighborhood drills. They want drills as a service, with proprietary bits that cost 15 times more than the standard hex bits and wear out after three uses. They want drills that are glued shut and protected by a thicket of anti-tampering laws that make them either non-repairable or repairable only by manufacturer's price-gouging service depot. That's the post-ownership society they've already built. Amazon sells you ring cameras to put in your home and on your porch, and then gives the cops warrantless access to their feeds. Apple sells you a phone that runs software only from its official app store, where they cream off a 30% fee for every in-app transaction, fees that are then passed on to you. The Google Nest burglar alarm or smart light switch you buy bricks itself when the manufacturer decides it's time for you to upgrade. Every modern car tracks your location wherever you go, selling that data to shadowy brokerages who merge it with other data and sell that to all comers. In their post-ownership society, your Kindle ebooks aren't yours and can be updated or deleted at any time. Your HP printer updates itself and learns how to reject the third-party ink cartridges you bought a year's supply of at the start of the school year. The music you rip from iTunes with a CD is deleted because Apple had a contract dispute with the label. You can't buy Christmas movies anymore. Just subscribe to streaming services that remove all the holiday programming from the basic tier from November to February and charge you an upgrade fee to share them with your kids on Christmas morning. You can enjoy Rudolph for free with your subscription in July, though. The swivel-eyed loons aren't wrong to be worried about the WEF's version of a post-ownership society. They're very, very right. When COVID first struck, the science was unclear 
and we took a lot of countermeasures to prevent transmission via surface contagion. Remember washing your groceries? After we learned more and the WHO finally stopped dragging its feet and acknowledged that the virus was primarily spread by aerosols, not droplets, we largely stopped worrying about surface contamination. Sadly, we never embraced ventilation with the fervor that we brought to surface cleaning. But not when it comes to cash. The cashless society was vastly accelerated by lockdowns, and with it, massive profits for the highly concentrated payment processing sector. Companies like Visa, Amex, and MasterCard, and their banking affiliates, who are creaming off billions, charging us to spend money. Technically, they charge merchants to receive money, but those expenses are passed on to us. Swivel-eyed loons are very worried about the cashless society and claim that it gives corporations undue control over basic commerce by deciding who can get access to a credit card and which merchants can accept cards. They're right to worry. Access to financial services is a primary means of extra-legal control over whole sectors of the economy. It's not just that poor people pay higher fees for credit and debit cards, though that's true, the poorer you are, the more spending a virtual dollar costs. It's also that sex workers, migrants, dissident journalists, and other marginal and at-risk groups are routinely denied banking services and transaction processing containing pain and privation for the people who can least afford it. One answer to this is the central bank digital currency, basically publicly run alternatives to credit and debit cards. In theory, a public option for cashless transactions will discipline the big financial institutions, forcing them to slash junk fees and predatory rates in order to remain competitive with CBDCs. Swivel-eyed loons oppose CBDCs on the grounds that they are another potential tool of state surveillance and oppression. They're not wrong about that. But the thing is, the financial companies are already incredibly cozy with law enforcement and national security agencies, engaging in routine, widespread data sharing with cops and spies. The government doesn't need a CBDC to spy on all your transactions or to decide that you shouldn't be allowed to get the money you're owed. They can already do that with a quick call to MasterCard, Visa, Amex, PayPal, or the other major transaction processors. The difference being that a CBDC would slash bank profits. Likewise, a 15-minute city will erode oil company profits. The swivel-eyed loons have a point, but they're missing the bigger picture. They're right to be suspicious of ALPRs, but not because they will be used to oppress well-off small business people. It's because they're already used to oppress people of color and poor people. They're right to be suspicious that a crisis, be it COVID or the climate, will be seized upon by opportunistic corporations to brutalize workers and gouge shoppers. But the answer to this isn't less regulation, it's muscular antitrust, shattering these companies into squabbling competitors who can't coordinate to rip us off. They're right to be worried that our movements are being curtailed, but not because 15-minute cities are a stalking horse for Warsaw ghetto-style walled neighborhoods. There is already a program of widespread, nightmarish, illegal restrictions on movement in the form of the UK, the US, and the EU's blatant violations of their obligations to refugees and asylum seekers. The anti-lockdown movement exploited the legitimate anger of everyday people about elites ignoring the rules they set for the rest of us. 
These everyday people were then mobilized to fight for the rights of factory owners, logistics companies, and other large corporations to murder their workers with a policy of letter rip. You might have some swivel-eyed loons in your life. I certainly have my share. Remember that we have common ground. When they say they don't trust vaccines because the pharma companies are corrupt and the regulators are toothless, that's not your signal to defend the manifestly corrupt pharma companies who murdered 800,000 Americans with opioids, nor to cape for the regulators who let them get away with it. Likewise, we all want to, quote, save the children. It's just that some of us want to save children from real threats who never seem to face justice. Youth pastors, Catholic priests, rich people with private islands, border agencies practicing family separation. While the swivel-eyed loons want to save kids from imaginary threats. Adrenochrome-guzzling Satanists. Remember all the things that they're right about. Lean into the common ground. Help them understand that corporate power and its capture of government is our true shared enemy. We live in a fraught and perilous time, and powerful people really do want to capitalize on this situation to enrich themselves at our expense. It's a brutal thing to think about, and frankly, it's no wonder that it turns some of us into swivel-eyed loons. All right, well, that's it for this week. Boy, it's going to be several weeks before I'm back on a Sunday, so I don't know when I'll talk to you next, probably mid-June. But in the meantime, I hope maybe you'll come out to some of my events, and I really hope that you'll consider picking up one of my books, uh, maybe Red Team Blues, the new one, if you've never given them a try, because I tell you what, if you like these essays, you're going to love the books. Talk to you later. You've been listening to the Cory Doctor Podcast, licensed under Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Sharealike US 3.0, Or as Woody Guthrie put it in another context, this song is copyrighted in the U.S. under seal of copyright 154085 for a period of 28 years, and anyone caught singing it without our permission will be a mighty good friend of ours, because we don't give a dern. Publish it, write it, sing it, swing to it, yodel it, we wrote it, that's all we wanted to do. Many thanks to John Taylor Williams for mastering. That's Rynex Studio, W-R-Y-N-E-C-K Studio at gmail.com. John Taylor Williams is a full-time self-employed audio engineer, producer, composer, and sound designer. In his free time, he makes beer, jewelry, odd musical instruments, and furniture. He likes to meditate, to read, and to cook. Talk to you next week.